Hello, you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Temur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 44th episode. We are into the second month of 2020 with new leadership in the U.S. and continued struggle to overcome the pandemic. To get a sense of the economic policy agenda of the new administration and the outlook from Washington, D.C., we have with us a veteran of U.S. and international economics. Mark Sobel is U.S. Chairman at Official Monetary and Financial Institutions Forum, better known as OMFIF. Mark has been at the forefront of international financial diplomacy for several decades. He represented the U.S. at the International Monetary Fund's Executive Board till April 2018. Prior to that, Mark was Treasury Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Monetary and Financial Policy between 2000 and early 2015. He helped lead Treasury preparations for G7 and G20 finance minister and central bank governor meetings, formulated U.S. positions at the IMF, and coordinated Treasury and regulatory agencies' work in the Financial Stability Board. We're lucky to have him here with us today. Mark Sobel, welcome to Kopi Time. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, it's my, my honor. Uh, let's begin with the U.S. economic outlook. We are seeing signs of a loss of rebound momentum in the latest string of macro data. What's your assessment of the current juncture? Well, let, let's uh, remember these are unprecedented times. Uh, maybe we should step back a second. Uh, U.S. annual GDP fell 3.5% last year. Uh, it fell 2.5% on a fourth over fourth basis. Uh, horrific numbers. Uh, they were much better than for other advanced economies, owing to uh, a more aggressive U.S. macroeconomic response. Uh, they certainly were much better than expectations early last year that 2020 would see a loss of 6.5%. Um, so we had 33% annualized growth in the third quarter. It was down to 4% in the fourth quarter. Right now, um, the economy is bifurcated. Uh, some sectors are prospering, housing, many work from home and manufacturing activities are doing quite well. But uh, parts of the services sector are being hurt. Uh, restaurants, travel and tourism in particular being hit very hard. So overall right now, I'd say, you know, the economy is somewhat floundering amid the enormous uh, COVID second wave. Retail sales have been slightly down for three months. Uh, new weekly unemployment claims remain close to 900,000 a, a week. Mutations uh, in, in the virus are not going to help the situation uh, out at all. The U.S. implemented a 900 billion support package in December, which is uh, beginning to provide unemployment support and stimulus checks. That should help boost the first quarter. Various now casts for what they are worth are as usual all over the place, but they're often in the five to seven percent range again for the first quarter. So yeah, we're we're in the doldrums. Um, fiscal support will be uh, coming uh, on on stream. Right. I mean, I certainly want to talk about that with you momentarily, but perhaps since you did start talking about GDP and beyond the immediate juncture. Perhaps you could give us a sense of the rest of the year, because in the market, of course, there's this expectation that the second half of 2021 would be characterized by a very sharp pickup, combining successful vaccine rollout and large fiscal stimulus. Do you share that optimism? Uh, I share the general view. So economists are really quite uniformly buoyant about the 2021 economic outlook. Uh, monetary policy is running flat out. 
the December fiscal package is being rolled out, but uh, President Biden has proposed a 1.9 trillion fiscal package um, and most expect some kind of package. This is a topic we can return to if you'd like. If vaccine rollout takes hold, confidence could return to the economy and uh, her, as herd immunity uh, is being reached. Real disposable income is strong in the United States due to government benefits, uh, even if those faded in the fourth quarter. Economists estimate that there's about $1.6 trillion of excess saving in the US. Uh, the private saving rate is quite high, around 14%. Uh, I noticed the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget estimated that $1.3 trillion in fiscal support has not yet been committed. So I think a key issue for 2021 and the outlook is timing. If confidence perks up uh, in the second quarter, boosted by large fiscal support, I think one could see extremely strong, robust growth in 2021. If these forces take longer to come together, one should still see a robust second half. Uh, based on how soon one expects these forces to gel, forecasts vary. Uh, I've seen a range of five to 8% annual growth for America this year with um, you know, those in the six and a half to 8% range basically thinking uh, things may start coming together in the uh, second quarter. So we'll have to see. But the, the, baby, the basic point you made about a robust second half, I think, uh, is a uh, legitimate uh, uh, way to look at it. Uh, Mark, I want to talk about the fiscal uh, outlook uh, in, a, in a second, but I just want to get a sense from you. The loss of momentum in uh, late 2020, would you attribute it entirely to uh, the resurgence of the virus? Or you think that, as you were talking about timing, that some of the stimulus that should have been in place, say, early in the fourth quarter were not, and that perhaps also contributed to the loss of momentum? I think it's, I think it's both. Um, okay, so on the uh, Biden rescue bill, uh, can you give us a sense of the measures that are almost certainly likely to pass and measures that are proposed but could face challenges? Well, you know, nobody has a crystal ball on American politics, so, uh, <laughs> so that is not easily done. And as you know, they're hashing it out uh, uh, as we speak. So um, to step back, uh, Biden proposed a $1.9 trillion package. Uh, many analysts expect a plus or minus $1 trillion uh, package to make it through Congress. As I said, it's all being fought out as we speak. It's anybody's guess. Um, now, Biden signaled that he'd like to try and pass a bill with bipartisan support, but also that he and the Democrats won't preclude using more aggressive parliamentary maneuvers to push through the bill. Republicans and some centrist Democrats are signaling that the proposal, some 9% of GDP coming on top of December's package, which was about 4.5% of GDP, that is just too big. Uh, you saw yesterday some Republicans proposed a $600 billion package. The key feature is a proposal to send $1,400 stimulus checks to families at an estimated cost of around $465 billion. So this would be on top of the uh, $600 stimulus checks that were passed in December. These stimulus checks would go to a family headed by one person earning up to 75,000, 
dollars a year and a couple earning up to 150,000 children as well could get them. So many have observed that this is poorly targeted. Um, I think there's a decent chance there could be $1,400 checks, but I think the proposal can be far better targeted and the total costs scale back. Uh, I do expect that to happen. The Republicans proposal was for $1,000 checks, I should add. State and local support of $350 billion is proposed. Now, the Republicans often argue that many cities are run by wasteful Democrats. Um, the last package did not have state and local support. So state and local governments, uh, my recollection is they count for over 10% of the labor force. When you think about teachers, policemen, uh, firefighters and the like, uh, many cities are suffering large revenue losses through no fault of their own, although there are some uh, that are just doing fine. So I expect quite a bit of tussling around this. Uh, I didn't see clarity on this issue in the Republican um, letter that was issued yesterday. Perhaps greater clarity will come out uh, this today. Um, now, of course, the state and local governments do receive a lot of indirect support through uh, other categories which get funded, for example, education, mass transit, and the like. Uh, Biden wants to extend supplemental unemployment benefits through September at $400 a week. Um, these are already provided for through March at $300. I think there could be support for a supplemental uh, unemployment benefits, but there may be tinkering about whether it's 400, 300, and whether it goes through September or June or the like. Um, I expect uh, support for health and education funding and for vaccination um, and rental support. Um, I assume they could come up for some support for funding for children uh, as the president proposed, but uh, we're gonna have to see how it all plays out and that's going to happen and uh, I think very soon. And uh, in terms of uh, infrastructure and climate change agenda, I mean, would the stimulus package uh, target these or do you think that's just part of a general uh, spending approach that will happen through course of time? So uh, Biden's team signaled that this first bill they're calling the America Rescue Plan, I think. And I think that they have in mind a next bill, which they call the America Recovery Plan. Um, they've hinted they'll roll it out soon. Uh, we shall see how soon. Um, and there's talk about that bill, uh, including infrastructure uh, and tax uh, provisions. So um, that is um, going to be uh, another uh, tough uh, issue. There's a lot of support in America for infrastructure. There has been for a long time. There was support for it under Trump and it uh, didn't go through. I think Biden may see infrastructure and spending as one way to push uh, climate agenda. You know, one hears numbers like three or four trillion. Um, others, other wags are say two, two trillion might be more realistic. Then there's questions about how to pay for that to the extent needed. Biden had uh, a slew of tax proposals 
One would be to uh, partially raise the corporate tax rate. So it was, I think, at 35. Trump cut it to 21. Uh, Biden's talked about raising it to 28. Um, there's talk about altering some of the um, inherited tax uh, features. There's talk about raising some of the top marginal uh, rates for people earning over $400,000. Now, the, there, there's universal view that such a bill will um, have to go through what's called reconciliation. This involves budgetary procedures that uh, allow passage with a simple majority. So we will have to see, but I think that's going to be the next chapter after uh, the rescue package. I think there's a decent chance that um, they will get uh, movement on infrastructure. I don't think that much will be done uh, in the realm of taxation, uh, even if reconciliation um, uh, is used. I mean, some they, they should be able to get maybe something through, but... Uh, it won't necessarily be uh, a day in the park. Mark, earlier when you were talking about the checks, uh, whether it's 600 or 1400 or whatever it is, uh, that there is a line of criticism that they are poorly targeted. Given the way U.S. fiscal transfers work, is there a better way of targeting those checks? You know, a two-income household earning $149,000 with two children uh, and the individuals are employed, um, I guess you could ask, you know, why do they need uh, stimulus checks? I think that's a, a legitimate um, uh, question. So I, I do think personally that there is uh, scope for better targeting of the uh, stimulus checks. As a more general proposition, I would say that the United States um, doesn't do a great job on automatic stabilizers. Um, and then there's issues between the states and the federal uh, government. Uh, I think it would be better as a nation if we had a better system of automatic stabilizers rather than having to um, go through um, you know, these kind of congressional packages and all the political uh, fighting that goes along with them. Uh, and I think that's something that as a nation, we should consider uh, whether our politicians are um, have the vision to do that or the ability uh, to uh, find uh, consensus is another question. That's right. I mean, I think the federal system of the U.S. itself is a bit of a complicating factor. I mean, back in the days when I used to work at the IMF, we would talk about means testing for any sort of transfer program, but that was a very heavily data-dependent uh, Endeavor where you would have to be able to target households and have good tax data and income data from them in a single database, and then you would be doing the targeting. I suppose in a federal system like in the U.S., even though you do have federal tax uh, data available, uh, it's it's probably not as straightforward as the way, for example, the Indonesians or the Brazilians do it. Mark, the uh, I mean, this is getting on the verge of you know being a bit eco nerdy, but of course, you know, on fiscal, I think the most important thing for us economists is the fiscal stance and the impulse that it would have on growth. Um, so do you have a sense of a fiscal stimulus, the way it has been designed in the past year or so around the rescue packages and the one that President Biden is proposing that what kind of growth impact both in the near and medium term these sort of stimulus measures can have? You know, I don't have much profound to say on this. Uh, 
let's assume a one trillion package. I assume the multiplier is going to be around 0.6, maybe 0.7. I heard the uh, Gita Gopinath at the IMF use that figure the other day. She saw this in line with historical experience. So if you assume US nominal GDP in 2019 was 21 and a half trillion, and you multiply 0.6 times a trillion, 600 billion, you, you get a figure close to 3% of GDP. And of course that impact uh, will be spread out beyond the year. And again, it comes out, it would come on top of the past support and as I said earlier, uh, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget estimated that there's still about 1.3 trillion from the past bills to be committed. Right, so the rebound scenario for 2021 could easily entail over 4% growth, maybe four and a half percent or so. Uh, as I said, a lot of the forecasts I'm seeing are five to eight, uh, recently was talking with two gentlemen who are chief economists of firms and uh, one was somewhat positive about the second quarter and saw growth at six and a half for 2021, whereas the other colleague was more circumspect about the second quarter, but saw a very strong second half. And that person was down in the 5% uh, plus range. Right. Either way, these are impressive numbers. And when we talk about the dollar, I'm going to bring this issue back to you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve, uh, which has, of course, performed a rather heroic role over the past 12 months, uh, not just for the U.S., for, but for stabilizing the global economy. So um, we have now two, uh, you know, people with very deep Federal Reserve experiences in the government. We have Fed Chairperson Powell, and then we have Secretary Treasury Secretary Yellen, who was a former chairperson. Uh, how are they going to get along and, and work together? Look, they will work extremely well together. They know each other well from their Fed days, uh, and Powell was very supportive of Yellen. And I want to make a point. In my years in government, I noticed that senior officials just being smart was not enough for success. And a key ingredient for a senior official is not only to have your own well thought out opinions, but to have the right temperament, to be balanced, to be willing to listen to others, and you know, willingness to work out pragmatic solutions. My feeling is that Yellen and Powell both have uh, these qualities to the nth degree. Uh, more generally, I can say, based on my years in Treasury on the international side, uh, especially including Yellen's uh, time at the Fed, um, there were never secrets between the Treasury and the Fed. When we, that is, uh, Treasury and the Fed, worked together on G7, G20, FSB preparations, IMF policy issues, we worked together seamlessly, uh, no secrets. Um, I think Yellen's going to go back to the tradition of respecting Fed independence and not commenting on Fed monetary policy in public. I really shouldn't have said Yellen. I should have said the entire administration. And I think that will stand in contrast to Trump. Um, but I do, I do want to make the point that I think Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin and Powell got along quite well. And one rarely saw Mnuchin questioning Powell in public, um, putting the whole 13-3 uh, uh, facilities flap from December to the side. Okay, so we 
we have to, of course, talk about the inflation outlook. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Chair Powell in a press conference sort of pushed back uh, on the near-term inflation worries, although, you know, tips markets are pricing in slightly over you know, 2.3%, 2.4% inflation. Uh, even if you look at 10-year break-evens, you know, they are on the ascendance, nothing worrisome, but they're certainly not at the trough that we saw uh, early mid last year. You are worried about inflation, deflation, where do you stand with this? My view is that uh, the US economy has huge slack. Unemployment before COVID was under 4%. We're now at 6.7%. Uh, including broader measures of underemployment, 12%. Labor force participation is down. Uh, I've read statistics that GDP is 5% down from trend. Inflation has undershot for nearly a decade. Inflation expectations are well anchored, unfortunately, at too low a rate. Uh, Rents are a key component of the CPI. They're down. Now, one can also muse about... uh, excess global supply, creating global disinflation and weighing on the U.S. price outlook, as Powell did in his recent press conference. In the past, it was said that the China shock exerted such a force. I do think that even as the U.S. recovers, there's plenty of slack around the world. Uh, I expect Chinese growth rates to subside uh, as the economy ages and moves towards more of a consumption services-driven economy rather than heavy investment. Europe and Japan will take longer than the U.S. to get back to trend. So I I'm basically uh, support what Powell said. Now, on the other side, I could well imagine there could be upward price pressures from supply chain problems in the near term. Uh, those are unlikely to be enduring, and the Fed will look through these. Of course, the Fed has adopted its new flexible average inflation targeting framework, and Rich Claritas' uh, statement that the inflation would have to be above 2% for a year before rate tightening could be considered uh, is quite significant. So I think that Powell was right to push back and especially in the context of sending the message that the Fed is deeply concerned right now about maximum employment and that the Fed's going to remain highly accommodative. Right, I mean, I really appreciated a point that Powell had made, I think it was a little more than a year ago that the link between keeping rates um, you know, low uh, and, and high pressure economy to borrow a phrase from Yellen was that toward the end of the business cycle, you see people who are really disadvantaged, come from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds and have uh, disabilities get employed and the job of any government agency is to sort of ensure that you know, that late cycle recovery is stretched as much as possible as long as inflation doesn't pick up. And I'm sure those sort of considerations would come back too. Uh, But Mark, uh, you seem to understand the average inflation framework pretty well. And you just cited uh, Clarita's uh, forward guidance. But do you think that the market is getting it properly and the Fed has explained it properly? Well, well, thank you for the compliment that I understand flexible average inflation targeting well. uh, You give me far too much credit. I think calling for the strategic review good idea in and of itself, but it was put forth in late 2018. And at the time, the dual mandate was being, roughly speaking, met, and there were good prospects that uh, some of the challenges put forth uh, would be confronting the Fred. But um, conditions 
changed in 2019 and uh, the pandemic hit subsequently. So we're nowhere near close to maximum employment nor inflation of 2%. The Fed's made it very clear through forward guidance and uh, repeated statements, the Fed funds rate is not going to move for several years. So to me, in a way, the review outcomes, uh, while very thoughtful, can be seen as somewhat aspirational. Now, it could be that in the future, we'll get back to this 2018 situation with unemployment going below 4% and inflation perking up above 2%, uh, but we're certainly not there yet. I think it would make sense uh, in such circumstances to uh, run the economy hot and flexible average inflation targeting goes in that direction. Uh, the market has certainly received the message from the Fed. I, I doubt it'll be as easy as thought. So for example, one thing on my mind is that, let, let's say inflation goes above 2%, but gently settles in above that. Okay, fine. But let's say inflation starts rising quickly and bursts through 2% and is still on an upward track. Well, that'll be a different scenario uh, for the Fed. So, um, so that's why I, I think that uh, flexible average inflation targeting is a, it's a good idea and concept, but we're gonna have to see what the reality is, but the reality is uh, several years off. Okay, Mark, I will give you another scenario, uh, which is inflation is not a problem 2% or so, but we are seeing a huge run-up in property prices we're seeing financial market volatility um, akin to something maybe what we saw last week. Um, so financial stability issues. Uh, under those circumstances, even if rate increases are not being considered, uh, people might start equating the liquidity with the asset market overshoot and would tapering be then on the table? Great question. Um, you know, rates are on hold, but what about asset purchases? Uh, well, let's talk about taper, but there's also kind of a whole broader financial stability dimension to that. If obviously the US fiscal monetary mix is uh, super aggressively accommodative uh, these days and will remain so if when the Biden package of some magnitude is passed. Now, um, if the economy is booming as we've outlined, they're gonna be those who are gonna say asset purchases have not only accomplished the purpose of stabilizing markets, which they did last March and April, but supported the economy. And um, they're gonna be others who are gonna say, well, if inflation hasn't perked up, why we should continue the purchases. Now I expect uh, tapering voices to emerge later this year. Uh, I could see tapering starting next year. Uh, one colleague cynically mentioned to me the idea that maybe Chairman Powell would want to hold off on any tapering till after he saw whether he was reappointed. Um, in any case, uh, Powell noted the other day that uh, the Fed does have experience with tapering. I guess my view is when a ship turns around, there's inevitably going to be a sustainable, a substantial wake. And I'm not sure that is easily gotten around. So that's my basic uh, uh, view. Um, one thing that might bear watching is if long rates start rising with a good head of steam, what would that mean for asset purchases and tapering? Would the Fed feel it needed to continue asset purchases uh, for a longer period? 
Right. But uh, if indeed yields start rising and questions about the Fed taking capital losses on its portfolio come up, uh, would that be a political football uh, with, with you know, politicians, especially on the right, try to jump on that, that the Fed is being irresponsible? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, this is certainly people haven't worried all that much about the Fed uh, making losses. In fact, the Fed's been making humongous profits and turning right. them over to the Treasury in recent uh, years. There have been more attacks on the Fed as it's such a prominent, uh, invisible uh, force in the United States. But I think it is respected as a technical institution. Uh, we'll have to see where the, the debate uh, heads. You know, I, I, I do worry that the Fed may come under the spotlight more uh, in the coming years if there are worries about fiscal dominance um, or the Fed has to uh, come in to uh, keep yields down in some kind of uh, yield curve control uh, situation. But uh, that, that's really not today's problem. Uh, right now, the focus is let's get out of the, let's deal with the pandemic. Right. Um, speaking of today's problems, um, are there any specific financial stability issues you have in mind that worry you? Let me uh, comment on that. Uh, my, this is an issue of broad uh, interest to me, given some of my past uh, roles following financial stability concerns and working on the financial stability board uh, uh, issues for the US. So look, after the GFC, the global financial crisis, uh, we did a good job on bank capitalization, liquidity, leverage, et cetera. Um, you can have debates about whether it was enough or not, or what's happened in recent years, but the systemic banks so far have weathered the COVID storm well. Now, the banks are in the Fed's domain. By tackling banks, it was inevitable that activity would gravitate towards non-banks. Non-banks were huge terrain, but indeed it appears that some non-bank activity in March of last year related to money market funds, corporate bonds, ETFs, risk parity trades, et cetera, these got out of whack. Uh, perhaps reflecting too much leverage and interconnectedness in the financial system. And these forces caused the Fed to go well beyond its 2009 playbook to stabilize global financial markets. So I think this is a terrain that needs to be tackled. The Financial Stability Oversight uh, Council created by the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, in my view, has been dormant over the last four years. Uh, the Office of Financial Research, another uh, body created by Dodd-Frank to uh, examine systemic risk in the U.S. economy. Its budget has been slashed in the last few years. So America needs a full set of macroprudential tools as a first line of defense against froth, especially as non-banks can hit the Fed's ability to execute its dual mandate. Uh, you want to have monetary policy target inflation, but if financial stability concerns arise, well, you need sound mi microprudential regulation, but macroprudential tools are needed um, as well. So um, especially if the Fed's going to focus on its dual mandate. I hope that Janet Yellen will revitalize the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which brings all the regulators together um, and has a particular 
mandate on non-banks. I think the SEC has a big job here too. Uh, I think that there are measures that can be taken to toughen up money market fund rules, use margining and collateral requirements and look at funds liquidity management. Um, I think another issue for non-banks is that the international community agreed years ago to look at activities-based regulation rather than focusing uh, on entities in the first instance. So that would be looking at issues such as interconnectedness and leverage. And that's a sensible argument, but uh, it shouldn't preclude an entity focus. And I don't know what it means concretely uh, to conduct activities-based uh, uh, oversight. So I think that needs um, substantial flesh, fleshing out. Now, everybody's fixated right now on GameStop and Reddit boards and that like. That isn't my focus per se, but I do think that those issues raise a number of market conduct issues in the US, especially pertaining to retail investors. And I fear that we will perpetuate a view that financial markets can be seen as a rigged casino. And I don't think that's good for American uh, financial markets. No, I, I fully concur. I think that some of these developments rather obvious, but have sort of still put together, have sort of crept up on regulators, whether it is, you know, sort of commission-free trading or, you know, deep democratization of finance and then, you know, how institutions play versus how individuals play. I think this is one of those examples where um, it's, it's uh, sort of, you know, woken everybody up, uh, in, but it doesn't seem like, you know, whether the SEC or others have any specific uh, play in mind in dealing with this uh, volatility that we saw last week, which was just extraordinary that, you know, in, at a time when the market sells off by two, 3%, VIX goes to the highest you've seen um, since the uh, global financial crisis. I wanna switch to one of your pet areas, Mark, which is exchange rates. Saw a piece you wrote recently entitled, uh, Don't Overplay the Dollar's Decline in 2021, as I'm sure you know that you are at the other end of the bet because the market seems to be uh, uniformly bearish the dollar. Walk us through the circumstances in which we can see a rebound of the dollar and also against which currencies. Well, thank you. Um, only a fool uh, thinks he knows where exchange rates are headed. Um, <laughs> But uh, since I uh, so enjoy you and I'm so honored to be on your show, I am going to be foolish. So you're right, uh, there's a lot of bearishness. A few weeks ago, it was really quite pronounced. I think it's uh, ebbed a bit um, uh, lately. Um, I didn't really understand it. I think that uh, a lot of the journalists get very excited about uh, something, the Bloomberg uh, dollar index, the DXY. Right. I think you have to look at it. Um, so. Between the euro, I think the euro is something like 56% of it, and then yeah. other currencies closely related to it, Swissy, Sterling, um, and Scandies, Scandinavians. And so it's basically three quarters euro, right? So if you just follow dollar euro, you kind of know what, what the DXY is going to tell you. Uh, I think a lot of the journalists have been measuring um, uh, the dollar's movement against uh, the March peak in the dollar. If you remember, the dollar shot up when the uh, liquidity squeeze was, was back on and then it eased. So I tend to look at it from the beginning of um, uh, 2020 before COVID. And, and you find that, well, the moves are a lot uh, smaller. And then, as, as I said, you know, what are you trying to measure is an important issue. I tend to look at the Federal Reserve's trade-weighted indices. The Fed's trade-weighted indices is 
maybe very slightly down over the last uh, year or flat. Uh, it's down a little bit against the uh, major currencies. It's up, the dollar's up a bit against the emerging markets or it was the last time I looked at the data a few weeks ago. So, so basically it's a flattish picture. So I guess you, your question, who, well, the U.S. macro response has been more aggressive than what we've seen out of Europe and Japan. Uh, rates were already compressed at the short end, and short end rates tend to be uh, an important driver of foreign exchange movements. On the longer end of the curve, I think there's more upside potential for uh, U.S. rates than uh, those in Europe and Japan. Now. If the dollar falls, the Europeans and the Japanese are going to quickly get more accommodative uh, on their policy. You, you see many European voices fretting about uh, uh, dollar uh, depreciation, or, sh or should I say euro appreciation, Philip Lane um, prominently uh, amongst those. Um, so I think that um, I'm more in the camp of seeing some range trading. Uh, I do think the RMB is a good candidate for appreciation. It has been rising in recent months. Um, China's current account surplus has been boosted because, well, there have been very few tourist outflows from China because of the crisis. And meanwhile, uh, China is a good producer of PPE and work from home products uh, uh, and the like. And on the capital side, there have been some good inflows into China as it's uh, uh, opened up, uh, or the RMB instruments have been used in bond indices and the Chinese government bond yields are higher. So um, I think the China RMB is a, a good candidate for appreciation, but I could imagine the Chinese authorities may get a bit uh, um, uh, concerned about uh, sharply rising RM, RMB at some point. Yeah, so against uh, Europe, Japan, maybe range trading, uh, RMB rising, other EM, uh, I think you have to look uh, at the currencies per se. Uh, and then just one last point on currencies. I, I wanna give Janet Yellen a, an A plus for how she handled uh, the dollar questions in her confirmation hearing. Um, she said the dollar would be market determined, which is the way our policy has worked in practice for a long time. Um, she, in essence, reiterated G7 and G20 commitments by saying she did not condone in any way, shape or form targeting of exchange rates for competitive gain. And she made the point that if there are harmful uh, currency practices that are pursued by countries, she's going to be vigilant in, in pursuing those. So I think her messages were completely on target. Yes, and then actually it was uh, very widely followed and uh, you know whether her terms would be a bit different from the way uh, dollars characterization co was coming from the Trump administration or not. Uh, and yeah, you're right. She was uh, very good in that, uh, which I, I suppose sets the tone for how she'll be dealing with uh, contentious questions in the coming years. So I think that's all good for the world. Uh, Mark, you talked about China and, and that's a perfect segue into my next question. We are coming off four years of trade war, uh, lots of tariffs, market access restriction, and there was also a phase one deal Believe it or not, just a year ago, it seems like a very long time ago, uh, but we haven't seen much of a dent on bilateral trade balances. So was President Trump barking up the wrong tree 
And how do you see Biden administration dealing with all these issues uh, vis-a-vis China? Okay, so there's a widespread view across the political spectrum uh, in the United States that China has emerged as a strategic competitor. It doesn't play by the rules and we need to toughen up our approach. So there's widespread agreement. China unfairly forces technological transfers, um, that it excessively uses state capitalism and industrial policy and subsidies, that it violates uh, intellectual property rights standards, et cetera. There are obviously concerns about national security and Chinese technological products uh, and prowess. And then there are tensions around Taiwan, South China Sea, treatment of Uyghurs, et cetera. Trump's approach was highly confrontational, as you said. Um, you know, he quickly ended uh, the comprehensive economic dialogue, which was a uh, followed on the heels of the strategic economic dialogue and strate- strategic and economic dialogue that was pursued in the uh, Bush and the uh, Obama years. Uh, he resorted to tariffs. He focused on the bilateralism, on bilateral deficits and bilateralism and the trade balance. And he even declared China a currency manipulator when China didn't even meet the Treasury's own for, criteria for doing so. So I think Biden will be absolutely tough on China, but more tactically shrewd. I think his team will recognize the need to work with China where possible, such as on global public uh, goods, health, climate, and global economic and financial stability. Uh, I'd expect they will want to talk to China about contentious issues and see where there is scope for progress. I think it'll be hard for Biden to climb down from the tariffs uh, without some give on the Chinese side, even if it's China has shown it can live with higher rates. Uh, I don't see the entities lists going away. Uh, I think the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US, CFIUS, will remain prominent and continue to closely scrutinize Chinese transactions. So how to look tough at home, which you'll need to do for political, uh, domestic political consumption, while effectively talking to China will be a high wire tightrope act. Um, I think they'll also wanna reach out to allies and to Southeast Asia far better than Trump did to try and help create more of a common front on China. Uh, I hope this isn't put to you as a choice between America and China. Uh, That said, I don't think rejoining TPP will be an initial high priority item for them uh, because there's just a lot to be done at home, uh, not only with the pandemic, but just sorting out uh, diverse views in America about trade in general. Yeah, but Mark, I mean, I, I appreciate the focus of the current administration being on domestic issues and so on. But as you can see that the rest of the world is not standing by. Uh, in the last couple of months, we have seen that uh, comprehensive uh, regional economic partnership getting inked in Asia and China being part of that. China is expressing an interest in joining the CPTPP. I just saw a couple of days ago now the UK wants to join it. Um, so I, I would hope that you know there'll be some degree of multitasking going on that yes, focus on domestic policies, but it should not be just sequential and leaving this vacuum that you know others will go ahead and fill. Uh, Mark, oh, what about the tariffs? Are they gonna come down this year or no? As I mentioned, I don't think that reducing tariffs or climbing down from them will be easy for Biden. I don't expect them to go up, let's let me say that. 
but getting them down will require some amount of uh, US-China give and take and ne negotiation. And um, as I mentioned, I think the Chinese uh, are willing to live with the tariffs as they are. Uh, so the question then is going to be, how can they find a win-win situation between the two of them um, that doesn't cause domestic political problems for Biden? So I, th I think it's possible, but it's going to require some uh, careful uh, diplomacy, and it's certainly not uh, one of the top priority items for the Biden team. High wire tightrope, as you so aptly said. Um, Mark, uh, finally, on emerging markets, we've had some emerging market countries do better than others. Uh, and we've certainly had a few countries that were in out and out crises last year from lockdown, external financing challenges. And I suppose the one that I think most immediately is Argentina. And as we know, that you know, IMF is now renegotiating this $57 billion program that was um, uh, you know, somewhat ill-fated and of course you know, not going anywhere. Will the US Treasury weigh in on making the program work more forcefully than the previous administration and other than Argentina? Where are your sort of you know, worry points for EM this year? So let me break that question into two. Let me talk about EM and then Argentina. I have to say I have increasingly a hard time talking about EM in general or as an asset class. So when I look at the data, the first question I always ask is, is China in or out of the data because China can swamp all the data? Right. And then I ask myself, is a country in Asia or Latin America, for example? And another question is, does a country have idiosyncratic weaknesses? So if you look at Southeast Asian countries, uh, your region, these, these are countries that tend to have strong economic fundamentals and good buffers. Now in Latin America, Mexico, Peru, Chile, Colombia do a decent job. Brazil has huge fiscal sustainability issues, but its debt is almost domestic and um, it's almost all domestic and the real floats, uh, its reserves are huge. And then when I think of idiosyncrasy, uh, it's hard to think about South Africa, Pakistan, Ukraine and Turkey without thinking about their own homegrown vulnerabilities. I guess my bottom line is with the Fed keeping rates low and commodity prices coming back, those are positives for EM in terms of their financing. Um, but many EM, of course, have less macro space in advanced economies, uh, less access to vaccines. So I see conditions improving, but not an easy situation. Um, I'd expect Asia to do better than uh, most of the emerging market world in general. Turning to Argentina, well, this is the quintessential idiosyncratic story. The Trump administration was highly supportive of Argentina. Uh, I fully expect the Biden administration to be so as well. Uh, I'll ex I'd expect that the US will closely monitor the IMF's negotiations with Argentina and it will urge the two to find a respectable landing zone. And when the administration sees the landing zone coming into sight, it's gonna urge both parties to get there uh, and make sure that things don't go a cropper. I haven't been following 
Argentina situation uh, super closely. But if Argentina is racking up a large primary deficit and has limited financing opportunities, it may be hard for Argentina to avoid monetary financing, exchange rate depreciation, and high inflation. Uh, and then you throw in some of the difficult politics of Argentina, that any IMF program is going to have to be approved by Congress. Um, it's, it's a difficult situation. So I could see the fund getting put in a tough spot, especially as large Argentine repayments to the fund will come due starting late uh, this year. Uh, basically, I think there's a narrow path to the landing zone, and I, on balance, expect that path to be found, but I expect a good bit of Sturm and Drang uh, in the process. Oh, well, it would not be Argentina without that. Uh, Mark, I personally was the fiscal economist on the Argentina team back in 2006. And, um, you know, it's the, the potential and the challenges of that country, you know, I mean, that's just a very, very dramatic combination. Uh, Mark, maybe, this was maybe such that's a... why you moved back to Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but I do, I do miss, uh, you know, uh, visiting Argentina because the country does have abundance of riches and, and, and wonderful experiences to savor. Um, Mark, this was such a terrific masterclass. I, I can't thank you enough. And on behalf of the listeners of Kopi Time, I again express our gratitude profusely. Well, I had a great time. Thank you for having me. Thanks to our listeners too. Kopi Time was produced by Martin Taki. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. It is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. All 44 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.